0: Hi, I'm Max Bergman.
1: And I'm Donatien Ruy.
0: And this is The Eurofile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Eurofile. We have a really great show for you today. We're gonna focus on a number of really intriguing European security and defense developments, Most prominent of which, uh, tongue-in-cheek, is a new report from the CSIS Europe-Russia-Eurasia program titled, Transforming European Defense, a New Focus on Integration, which outlines a central role for the EU in rebuilding European militaries. Then we're gonna to turn to discuss Germany's new national security strategy. It's the first time ever that they've released a national security strategy. And last, we'll cover a recent meeting in Paris by French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and the Polish President Duda, where they discuss security guarantees for Ukraine and Kiev's push for NATO membership. Then for our conversation, we'll turn to Mathieu Durion. Mathieu is a visiting fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program here at CSAS where he focuses on transatlantic European security and defense. Prior to joining CSIS, Mathieu served as deputy head of the Strategic Affairs Unit at the French Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs, where his work focused on NATO, EU common security and defense policy, and maritime security issues. We will discuss a recent brief he co-authored with Stiles Hurt and Gabriella Ballstead about European naval capabilities and why they matter to the broader European defense landscape. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: All right. Why don't we start with your report, Max? You recently released this uh, this report co-authored with our colleague Otto Svensson, which, as you said, is titled Transforming European Defense, and you focus on integration. Your argument is that we've seen a lot of new funding commitments, but all these different commitments coming out of European, uh, European member states have not addressed how fragmented and disorganized the generation of forces is, and that An increase in investment is not going to automatically mean coordinated investment. Uh, So we're going to be left with a potentially dysfunctional status quo. And the key takeaway from this is that to address this, the European Union is a critical player to coordinate and integrate those defense efforts, especially when it comes to leveraging fiscal potential, which we've seen them use for COVID recovery, for example. Importantly, you argue that the U.S. should embrace this development And focus energy on encouraging European partners to increase that coordination and increase their spending. So why is it that it's the European Union, in your opinion, in this piece, that is the central player to rebuild those European militaries?
0: Well, great question. So I think, first of all, part of what this report tries to do is really look at um, the conundrum of European defense. And there's been a big debate in the pages of Foreign Affairs with Mike Mazar of the Rand Corporation making a really strong case for uh, why NATO is important to European security and why U.S. engagement in European security is really important and the benefits that the U.S. gets from it. And then kind of a a pushback from uh, what is the kind of the restraint crowd in Washington, people like Emma Ashford and Stephen Wertheim, arguing that, no, it's really time for Europe to step up on their own and really highlighting, look, the Europeans are wealthy and rich and can, can do this. And part of me agrees with both sides. And I think part of what, what Otto and I tried to do in this report is really, I think, figure out what is the right way forward uh, for European defense and for U.S. policy toward, toward European security. And I think one of the things that we also point to is that the United States really needs to figure out what it wants from Europe that the US on the one hand is sort of stuck, is kind of torn between two different impulses. One, on the one hand, the United States wants to be indispensable to European security. This is actually the goal of US policy. We, you know, I I worked uh, on on a functional bureau when I was at the State Department, worked all around the world. Working on Europe is great. Europeans love Americans. Uh, I was just in Oslo, and there's real appreciation for the role the United States plays in European security. And that ain't really the case in a lot of other places around the world. So the United States really values being indispensable to European security. We, we crave it. Uh, and then anytime we get a sense that the Europeans are starting to do things without us, we get really concerned. We, we quote, may have a few quotes uh, in, in, the, in the report where we point to Americans suddenly assume that, you know, European strategic autonomy basically means divorce and the end of transatlantic relations. And I think that paranoia is is really offbeat. Now, so on the one hand, we want to be indispensable. And on the other hand, we complain endlessly about the lack of European uh, military capabilities. And what we really point to is the U.S. wanting to have its cake and eat it, too. That we want Europe to spend more on defense, yet be totally kind of uh, in line with all U.S. policy decisions. And I think what we sort of point to is that actually, we need Europe to begin to develop, uh, to be more of an autonomous actor, to have capabilities that they can uh, defend themselves without us. And they should be investing in capabilities that we may need to, to deploy to the Indo-Pacific uh, if there was going to be a China or Taiwan contingency. And we want Europe to have a degree of redundancy. And that doesn't mean that the United States will needs to pull out of Europe. What it means is that Europe needs to develop certain capabilities. Now, when We turn to why the EU. The basic reality is that NATO has not been very good over the last two decades at forging European defense cooperation, at encouraging Europeans to develop capabilities. You know, we constantly talk about European countries not spending enough, and that's in you know one part of it. But another part of it is that the threat to most Europeans is no longer to the nation. And the way NATO functions is by really focusing on the nation state as the entity that needs to invest in defense. And the problem is that if you're you know, Belgium, you don't have a, a, a real national security threat to the nation. You have threat, you have national security challenges, you need to invest in a police force, you need to protect the institutions that are in, in Belgium, but you're not worried about the Germans or French coming and invading you anymore. And so needing to have fighter jets and other capabilities isn't, you're doing that because you're in an alliance. But the threat isn't to your nation, it's to your Europe, it's to the European Union, uh, it's to European security. And so part of the role of the EU that we see is not to create a European army, but is that the EU has money, as you noted, has financing capabilities, and can begin to help integrate European defense from the bottom up. NATO is great at integrating European forces once they exist, getting forces to fight together as one. What it's not good at, good at is really getting Europeans to invest together buy the same kit so that they can operate more effectively together. And that's really where we see the role of the European Union, beginning to integrate ministries of defense a bit more and encouraging European countries to, to spend more together.
1: So before we get into how we do that, what are the high level obstacles to this? Because when we hear from people like Christian Lindner out of Germany and his own concerns about spending more uh, and the debt that it will it will generate potentially, what is the level of political will across the EU to pool those resources? Also understanding that not every member of the EU is a member of NATO and vice versa. Where are the top level obstacles? And do you see opportunity to get past those.
0: There's lots of obstacles. And you pointed out one with Christian Lindner, German finance minister, being really cautious about spending at a European level and the EU budget getting bigger. Another obstacle is the United States, uh, where the United States has seen EU defense initiatives as uh, a real potential challenge to NATO. We also don't like the fact that if the EU spends on defense, then it's going to spend uh, that money in euros for on European defense companies, not on American defense companies. It's a basic reality. Then another obstacle is NATO, where NATO and the EU have been fighting this sort of really petty bureaucratic fight that reminds me a lot of my State Department days in fighting with the Pentagon, where you have two government agencies going back and forth when really they should be working together. But what is the comparative advantage of the EU? Why not NATO? Well, the EU has this this financing potential. And one of the, the things that we we've seen is that you throw out new proposals. Terry Breton when he came through town, highlighted one of them, which was this sort of pilot project where the EU would essentially provide financial incentives for European countries to work together. It has a great European acronym called ADERPA. But the problem is this is only 500 million euros. This should be, you know, a lot more than that. This should be 5 billion euros where the EU provides real money and says, hey, instead of everyone buying different tanks or everyone buying different air defense or everyone buying different ships, let's start buying them together, and here's a billion euros that the EU will put forth to basically defray some of the costs, basically subsidize uh, European countries to, to buy together. And so you then have Europeans operating more equipment together. This isn't the EU necessarily going in and buying and owning equipment, although it could potentially do that to fill some gaps such as in uh, air enabling capabilities. But it's really to create incentives so that you start seeing European countries start operating uh, the same kit. And that is not frankly happening. We've seen a decline in European defense cooperation over the last decade. So, and I think that that's a crucial factor and then enabling European forces to operate more interchangeably so that the Germans can provide munitions to to a Belgian force and you, you can move equipment back and forth. And currently you can't really do that. So Europeans really are stovepipe in how they operate and it's NATO's job to kind of coordinate the mess of that we have of European militaries. The one other thing I'd say is I think the major challenge when we look ahead is that the challenge of the decade is going to be European militaries rebuilding their capacity, rebuilding their capabilities.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you if there is even capacity for this kind of spending across the continent today.
0: Yeah, well, we have, we're seeing all these commitments, right? Of countries now committing to 2%. We're going to, you know, countries hitting it by 2026, such as I I just heard from Norway that they're going to hit it by 2026. And then that I think you're going to see those sort of commitments across the continent. Now, whether they're all be met is an open question. However, what you will see is European countries spending more. But if everyone spends more, but spends it, in an uncoordinated fashion, what's going to happen is that will have a marginal impact on European defense capabilities. It will not have the transformational impact that we're looking to see, and it also will mean that there will be real gaps that will emerge where European defense is currently dependent on the U.S., on U.S. capabilities, and that if Uh, If countries don't pool some of their resources to buy more air tankers and air refueling or missile defense, which is better if they buy it jointly together, in part because they're really expensive, then they're just going to be as reliant on the U.S. as they are today. Now, that, this is where U.S. policy needs to decide, is that what we want? And I think the answer to that is no. We want Europe to be a stronger, more autonomous actor, and I don't want to go into the whole strategic autonomy debate, but a more autonomous actor that can do stuff in the world, uh, that can defend itself if need be, that could do a mission in Sudan if it if it decided it needed to, or even conduct operations in the Indo-Pacific, whether as individual countries such as France and the UK, but potentially working more collaboratively together. and I think this is really not about the EU going against NATO, but we're really sort of working toward a European pillar within NATO that can uh, that is is really strong and capable.
1: And that has a lot very high potential just for positive dividends for the alliance. So if we can get around some of these some of these obstacles, there's there's a lot of potential to, to unlock here in the next few years.
0: And part of it is us pressing the Europeans, pressing the EU, the EU borrowed for COVID, but it didn't borrow in response to the war. And so the EU has this potential funding financing capability that's not utilizing, And but we've seen the EU, despite that, still invest a lot of money in supporting Ukraine, in training Ukrainian forces, and now trying to do joint ammunition. So the tools are being there and they should be expanded and, and this will really complement NATO. But maybe on that, We can shift gears to the new German national security strategy, which uh, just came out last week. Uh, This is their first national security strategy. Uh, What did you think of it?
1: I, I think it's interesting that there are three pillars and one is defense and the other two are not really. Not that a national security strategy needs to be purely defense. I think from the U.S. side, it's just that's what we're used to. Is a heavy focus on primarily defense threats and some security threats that can still be addressed through defense means. But those three pillars are one: an active and robust defense with a focus on deterrence. And we can talk about some of the NATO goals that are outlined there. I'd I'd like to hear your opinion on this. The second one is resilience, and that's there's a focus there on reducing economic dependencies, which is interesting. And I think that shows Germany has learned some lessons of the last few years. And then the third one is sustainability, especially when it comes to threats posed by climate change, food crises, extreme weather events, etc. So those are the three pillars. It's not that surprising, I will say. I think it makes sense for a German national security strategy, especially the first one, considering that the Greens are in government as well, the focus on sustainability makes sense. This has implications for defense as well, but I don't think that's necessarily where where they're thinking about it. Obviously, the two elephants in the room are mentioned. Russia is described as the greatest threat to peace and security in the Euro Atlantic area for the foreseeable future. I think it'll be you'll be hard pressed by someone who disagrees with that in Europe right now. And China is described both as a complicated competitor and systemic rival and a necessary partner, which are Terms that we heard also at the European level, but definitely tracks with Germany's approach to China over the last few years. Um, they have a separate China strategy that is supposed to be released in July, so I assume there will be more details there because Taiwan, for example, is not mentioned in this in this strategy. So, linking back to our our discussion earlier and whether European allies are ready to focus on the Indo-Pacific as well. But let's let's focus just maybe for now, on the defense pillar of the strategy, especially as we look towards the Vilnius summit in July. It includes a commitment to higher military spending, including reaching the NATO goal of 2% of GDP as an average over a multi-year period. What do you make of this?
0: I I think it means that Germany is going to struggle to hit 2%, but they're going to be spending more. They're going to be sort of getting there. I do think that they're taking defense a lot more seriously. And look, I think the national security strategy, doing a national security strategy is a good thing to do. Because it forces you as a government to sit down and be like, okay, what, how do we think about the world? It forces every, you know, all the agencies to get together. You know, I think one of the big news items was what was left out, which was that there's no sort of German National Security Council to sort of emulate the U.S. And the reason why we have a National Security Council is because there's a lot of cross-cutting issues that aren't just defense, that aren't just foreign affairs, that, you know, involve interior ministries but there was a dispute between the foreign ministry not wanting to give up they would felt that they would you know lose bureaucratic power and control to the chancellery and make the chancellery even stronger so it was just sort of left out fine and I think the Germans right now are, are getting a lot of uh, grief for some of uh, what they left out of the national security strategy. And I think the first rule of a national sc- uh, security strategy is you don't want to make it a laundry list that then uh, mentions everything. The second rule of a national security strategy is you have to mention everything and it has to be a laundry list or else you get uh, exactly what the Germans are getting of they didn't mention Poland, they didn't mention the UK. How could they not mention these countries?
1: But it's already 76%? pages. Yes. What else do we want?
0: And, you know, you saw in the U.S. National Security Strategy, I think what was a a very well-written document, and, you know, I know the people that were working on it, so that I'm, I'm sucking up to them. But, you know, at the end, they had to create a list of just like, here's the other regions that we're also thinking about, which is fine. I think this is, this document is fine. It shows, frankly, that Germany is taking defense, national security and its role in the world more seriously than it has before. Because the fact that Germany, the most powerful country in Europe, a country with 80 million people, a really you know, huge economy that can really drive Europe, hadn't done a national security strategy, I think, you know, is sort of reflective of where Germany was when it came to a lot of foreign policy and defense issues. So I, I think that's important maybe we'll shift gears to, to Vilnius and some of the diplomacy that's happening kind of behind the scenes, or maybe not so behind the scenes, about Ukraine. wondered if you could sort of unpack a little bit of what's happening.
1: So here's what we saw earlier last week. We saw President Macron, Chancellor Schultz, and President Duda meet in Paris to discuss some of the security guarantees for Ukraine, uh, especially ahead of the meeting in Vilnius in July. It's It's an interesting effort to try to Coordinate the position. I think before those countries get to get to the summit in July, uh, Poland has repeatedly called for stronger security guarantees, has pushed other NATO member states to give a real membership perspective for Ukraine into NATO, and has met with other NATO member states leaders in Eastern uh, Eastern Europe. I think also to try to drum up support for a common position. We've seen a little more caution on Scholz's part trying to say that the focus is not entirely, it should not be just on Ukraine and how it can be a NATO member, but how can we keep supporting Ukraine? So a little bit of a more cautious approach here. We've talked about what Macron said at the Globsec summit a few weeks ago and taking a bit of a forward-leaning approach here. What I think is interesting for me is Well, one is a positive thing, that they're trying to coordinate these positions, that Germany, France, and Poland are the ones talking about this, that shows that France is continuing to push for a more public support for Eastern European countries in this effort. But the second piece that I find interesting is in Poland itself. Uh, The leaders are very forward-leaning on supporting Ukraine, but we've seen in very recent polling numbers public support in Poland for supporting Ukraine has gone down. Uh, Some of this is potentially due, I would imagine, to the number of Ukrainian refugees who are in Poland. But right now we've seen for a new poll that came out that about 55% of Polish people believe Poland should not offer more help to Ukraine. So I'll be curious to see where those public opinions start running into the leadership's will for for offering more guarantees to Ukraine. Uh, But what did you think of of the meeting?
0: You know, I'm usually the kind of less cynical person when it comes to Macron and France. But in this case, I, I I think what we see is France realizes and understands that there's no way that the United States and I think Germany and a number of other European countries are going to admit Ukraine into NATO. It's just not going to happen. I've seen some very interesting like think tank analysis. There's been some very smart academics on online providing sort of, you know, here's how it could work where, you know, letting NATO, letting Ukraine in, Article 5 doesn't necessarily mean we have to go to war. You could do other things. Do you mean
1: now or ever?
0: Well, I you know, there's a big push for, you know, Ukraine membership now. That's obviously not going to happen. So now we're sort of talking about, well, maybe we'll adjust the membership action plan and and cut out some of the requirements that would enable Ukraine to join, which don't really mean anything that much anyway. Look, the basic gist of the problem and I you know, I wouldn't say this if I was like in government, obviously, is that Russia's at war with Ukraine and Russia's in Ukraine, so if Ukraine gets in, Ukraine would hit the Article five button, and if the Article five button means anything, you have the US would have to come and defend Ukraine. We would have to be at war with Russia. That's what it means. And I think you can try to find some ways to be creative, but ultimately the reason why NATO matters is because of that. That's the fundamental role of NATO. And this is why this whole invasion was never about Ukraine's NATO path because Russia already had a de facto veto because it was occupying Ukrainian territory that Ukraine said was theirs. So that's the fundamental problem. So I think in some ways this is all a bit of a distraction and what we should be focused on at Vilnius is really developing longer term sort of funding commitments to support Ukraine militarily, a la what the United States does when we have a, a, a memorandum of understanding with the Israelis that every year they will get $3.5 billion from the U.S. And what that means is the Israelis know that they're gonna get $35 billion over 10 years. So that means that they can make defense plans, they can go out and make acquisitions of F-35s, of air defense, other things, and they know what they're gonna have over a 10-year period. That really helps them with their defense planning and defense acquisition and, and builds their forces. And that's what Ukraine needs. It needs to not just be getting, you know, a tanks sort of hand to mouth, essentially, but needs to go in and make acquisitions to say, we need to buy 300 tanks. We want this new tank that has this. Please get it to us as soon as you can. 2025. Okay, okay, if you can get any to us fast enough, faster, fine. But then we need to be building out the Ukrainian military for the longer term. And that requires security commitments, funding commitments. And this is one area where actually Europe has more credibility than the United States. Because the United States could do a longer term, say, we're going to give you this amount of money, you know, $2 billion every year for your long-term defense acquisition needs, whatever it is. But in 2025, that could all change if an administration is different. Or if Congress decides that it, the Republican Congress decides it doesn't want to fund that. But what we see across the board in European countries is widespread support for Ukraine in a bipartisan way, and European parli- parliaments can oftentimes move money. So I think this is where actually European funding commitments longer term could be really important for Ukraine and send the message to Russia over the long term that can help Ukraine get the equipment it needs to really evict the Russians.
1: So then, those security guarantees that they're discussing could be that patch, barring membership. But
0: this is where, like, I went to Ukraine in 2014 when I was a, a senior advisor with uh, to Rose Goddard Miller, and one of the most excruciating press conferences was when she had did a press conference with Euromaidan. Everyone was very uh, respectful. All the new, you know, Ukrainian press were there, but there was all these questions about the Budapest Memorandum. Being like, we got rid of our nuclear weapons. You gave us security guarantees to basically protect us if Russia were to invade, and then you didn't. And so, and I think the answer to that is, yes, we didn't, because Russia can destroy where you are right now, Don Etienne, in in 30 minutes, Washington, D.C. I'm fortunately in the Stockholm archipelago, Uh, you know. Well,
1: fortunately, I don't know. You're a little closer.
0: (laughs) Closer, but I think the, you know, I think the ICBMs hit you first. So look, you know, nuclear weapons deter. That's the reality, and and I think that that's, that's the fundamental challenge here with, with uh, Ukrainian-NATO membership. I'm for Ukraine joining NATO, it's just that's gonna require Ukraine having territorial boundaries that uh, it can accept, and also that it, it has sort of forced the Russians to accept as well, and so we're kind of a long way from there, I think, and it's a depressing answer. But I think in some ways we should be a little bit more realistic and focus on the kind of more urgent and important efforts to support Ukraine.
1: I mean, it's a depressing answer probably most of all to Ukrainians and to President Zelensky. I think on our end, though, as you said, it is really important for us to be realistic about this because the more you make really wide and just lofty promises, one, the harder it is to keep the promises and two, the most pressure you get from your publics. Who bestow legitimacy upon you as a leader and allow you to keep doing the things that support Ukraine? So having that aspect of realism, I think, is really important in the conversations that these leaders are having now and will have in a month in Vilnius.
0: And let me just say, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope someone comes up with some really creative solution I haven't thought of that, like, somehow can thread the needle here and like Ukraine can be in and actually everything's fine. And I'm just like, you know, a worrywart about nuclear war. So, um, so I think that hopefully is the case. I'm just pessimistic and, and I think we should just kind of focus a little bit more on the practical. But I think with that, we'll turn to our conversation with Mathieu Durian uh, about European naval capabilities and you know we'll sort of continue the theme of this being a very defense-focused uh, conversation about about Europe this week. We are delighted to have Mathieu Drillon with us today. Mathieu is co-author of a fantastic new report, Are European Navies Ready to Navigate an Ever-More-Contested Maritime Domain? It's sort of all about uh, the state of European navies and what Europe needs to do to strengthen its naval capacity. He wrote it along with co-author Courtney Styles who is our Navy fellow here at CSIS this year, and Gabrielle who who is a visiting fellow here at CSIS. So, Mathieu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So maybe let's dive into the report. What is sort of the big conclusion you had when looking at the kind of state of of Europe's navies today? Well, basically
2: what we found out in in writing the report is that the the state of the European navies is rather consistent with the the broader European defense uh, picture in the sense that Uh, Following the the Cold War, uh, what we have seen is a a sharp downscale in investment in uh, high-intensity capacities and the shift of focus to less-intensity missions, such as fight against uh, piracy, Coast Guard uh, missions. And so basically, if we need to remember one one figure, is that uh, one-third of the main uh, surface combatants have been retired. Of course, this Trend has been reversed uh, recently, but I would say that Europeans are still exposed to two gaps. The first is too little, and the second is too late. Too little because basically, in the meantime, the main strategic competitors have been investing massively in their in their navies. Talking about Russia, investing in high-end capabilities in missiles, submarines, uh, un- uninhabited underwater vehicles, and perhaps more. Uh, striking is the uh, the PLA, the Chinese uh, Navy. Basically, in the past four years, uh, the PLA has built the equivalent of the French Navy uh, to give you an image. And if you if you aggregate all the assets of uh, the EU twenty seven, basically you have a navy that is the size of the the Chinese uh, Navy. It's almost the same number of aircraft carriers, uh, combatants, and it's even less submarines. So if you if you uh, at the US and UK, uh, Canada, so the the combined uh, uh, NATO assets are of course way above the Chinese navy. But I mean, the trend is quite quite worrying. The second gap is the the too late uh, too late one because uh, as you are well aware, uh, building high end capabilities takes time. It's not a debate only in Europe. I mean, you have this debate in the the Arcus uh, debate. I mean, how do we build the capabilities that are consistent with the uh, with the threats that they're supposed to tackle. But uh, for Europe, it's the same. If I take the uh, the new aircraft carrier that the French are envisioning, its commissioning is 2038. So it's always good to have a... It will always be relevant to have a, a new aircraft carrier. But if bad comes to worse in other hotspots like East Mediterranean or Arctic or uh, whatever, you want to have the capabilities to to be able to
0: respond. Yeah, I think one of the things that was really important about the report, sort of a reminder that, that despite all the complaining that we constantly hear about the state of Europe's military, is that Europe indeed does have still significant naval capacity. And while the Chinese naval fleet is really expanding, Europe collectively brings together a number of really important and, and prominent naval assets in terms of aircraft carriers and submarines. I guess the question then is, Looking ahead, it seems like Europe has this sort of tough balancing act of now trying to uh, build for the long ter- longer term, but also sort of maintain a higher level uh, of readiness in the present. You know, there was a lot of focus at NATO on the need to rebuild European ground forces given the the Russian threat. Well, now that Russia's army has sort of been uh, heavily attrited, uh, their navy hasn't been to the same degree and Russia still poses a, a real naval threat maybe if you could project out then what what do you think is the kind of the next 5 10 years are european navy's going to get worse before they get better or are we beginning to see an upswing of, of of recent investments that will will pay dividends
2: well it's it's hard to tell i think as i mentioned those i mean especially the high end capacities which are the one that the, the competitors will uh, will watch closely these take time and i mean it's hard to to envision that the Europeans are able to to catch up by the end of the uh, of the decade, uh, whereby some very high end uh, Russian projects in terms of uh, of submarines, uh, missiles are about to be commissioned. So the next coming years, uh, let's say the medium term, is is a is a bit uh, uh, concerning. But again, the, the, there has been an awakening, um, I think, in in all uh, European countries. But if you look, for instance, at the uh, the Titan vendor in Germany and how Germany is envisioning to uh, to rebuild its army. The, the naval component uh, is very low, uh, for instance. Italy, uh, uh, France, the UK have uh, a longer tradition of, of uh, stronger armies, so I, I guess they will be able to to deliver more. But but so far, if you look at the trajectories and especially as you mentioned, the the lessons that are drawn uh, from the. The conflict in Ukraine is that as the countries uh, expand their defense spending, they are investing mainly in, in in land and probably air defense, and and I'm afraid navies uh, come later. But that's that's also uh, not taking fully account of the the broader the broader picture, uh, which is again that all the competitors are investing massively in, in navies, and you have a multiplication of. Uh, dangerous theaters, be it the Indian Ocean, the Arctic, the the Eastern Mediterranean. so.
1: So you just mentioned a few of the regions. To me, the importance of this whole conversation is what we want those militaries to do, right? And when we think about updating, modernizing those capabilities, can you walk us through where geographically where they currently are? And when we think about new capabilities, improved capabilities where we want them to be. There's a lot of conversations in the Transatlantic Alliance these days of the Indo-Pacific and how much European navies or European militaries as a whole should be doing there. Is that one of the goals of this modernization? Are we looking at other areas that we want those militaries and navies to be in particular?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's a very, very interest, interesting question. So I would say there are different approaches uh, among Europeans. You have uh, European navies that have their own uh, planning and, and and approach based on their own uh, geographical priorities. I'm thinking about, about France, the UK uh, that also have overseas uh, territories to uh, to protect. And then you have a fair number of Europeans that uh, rely on, on mainly NATO, of course, and, and the EU to tell them what to do with their own uh, assets. Uh, so basically, most of the assets are, are still in the in the Euro-Atlantic uh, area. But indeed, there is a, a growing focus, and I would say a growing dilemma regarding the, the Indo-Pacific, because of course this is very important uh, issue and a very strategic uh, challenge for the whole of NATO. And we see the, the US pushing uh, for the Europeans to be to be more involved there. Uh, but the fact is that the European navies are. Uh, are lacking availability and they're already kind of uh, overstretched. I think a number of countries think that being a good ally is also uh, being more involved in the Indo-Pacific. So you've seen an, an uptick of deployments in the Indo-Pacific. You had the, the Germans going for the first time with their Bayern frigate. Uh, you have the Italian coming by the end of this year with their uh, Cavour, career. The Netherlands came uh, for, for the first time in, in the region. but. Uh, that also implies to have the necessary capabilities to uh, to make such uh, uh, long uh, long distance uh, deployments, and I think a lot of European navies are are, are not there uh, yet. I, I would also mention the, the role of the uh, European Union, because interestingly, the, the maritime operations that have been launched by the by the EU, uh, some of them have been quite uh, far from the European coasts. Think about the uh, uh, operation Atalanta, which is in the northern Indian Ocean, which has uh, proven quite efficient in in fighting uh, piracy in in this region. Uh, You also have the so-called coordinated maritime presences that the the, the EU is working on. It's basically having uh, different European assets uh, to enhance uh, maritime security in certain areas. So now they they are in the Gulf of Guinea, in Africa, and they are also implementing a new one in, uh, in the Indian Ocean.
0: Matthew, you mentioned earlier that, you know, collectively what what the EU 27 bring to bear is, is quite substantial when it comes to naval assets. But of course, that's that sort of how uh, the EU actually, EU countries, you know, procure systems. They, this is all done on a national basis. Do you think, and in, in, in the report, do uh, you talk about ways that this could be an area for increased European uh, defense cooperation and integration. Because it it strikes me that you have shipbuilding capacity uh, across the European continent, both in France and countries like Germany and in Norway, not in the EU, but still having shipbuilding capacity. And then also this being a, a tremendous expense for European countries to maintain robust navies and perhaps they would be better off uh, pooling resources, working more together, training together. Uh, and I'm curious if there's been advances in, in that. What do you think the prospects are for for increased European defense cooperation and integration? And do you have any ideas on how that can, can be improved?
2: Again, this is consistent with the, the broader European defense uh, questions that, that we have. I think there are, there is awareness that more integration is needed, but then when it comes to political or maybe more industrial wheel, it's always more uh, complicated. So you had some, let's say, ad hoc cooperations, uh, voluntary cooperations between countries. Uh, the Italian and French have, have built their Frem multi-mission uh, frigates together. You also had some German-Dutch uh, cooperation extended to, uh, to Norway. Uh, but this is, really, this is really in its infancy. What is interesting is that you have... Uh, uh, new projects uh, at the EU level, supported by the EU, for instance, the, the European Corvette that is uh, built in the framework of the so-called uh, Permanent structure Cooperation, PESCO. So using an EU framework, uh, it's an uh, Italian-led uh, project. So this is something that is uh, quite interesting and hopefully that uh, uh, can be built on for more uh, more ambitious projects. And, And of course, you have all these instruments that the EU is setting up to make funds available to, to finance joint projects. So we hope to see more of these in the, in the future.
0: So, uh, Mathieu, I hate to bring up the subject of AUKUS with with a with French diplomat, but I wonder if actually AUKUS could provide somewhat of a, a framework for, or a model perhaps for European uh, naval cooperation. And you mentioned in the report the potential for Europe to maybe think about trying to expand its ambition. It's it through PESCO, which is the the greatest acronym where when you spell out PESCO, you still have no idea what the hell PESCO stands for. But they are are constructing a Corvette. There's efforts to try to sort of build potentially procure that uh, more widely. But you talk about expanding European ambitions to perhaps focus on on a European submarine. Maybe you could uh, talk a little bit more about that. You won't have a Frenchman telling you that we should replicate the AUKUS uh,
2: method. But I think on the substance, yes, this is something that is uh, very interesting that the the two Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific theatres are more and more uh, intertwined. I think, especially for countries like France or others that say we should have our own European way in the Indo-Pacific, having uh, a project of that kind, European-led, with an Indo-Pacific country, even in terms of strategic uh, signaling, could be... Uh, could be interesting. So uh, AUKUS is one model, there are others. I think a nice benchmark is the, the global combat air program that uh, Japan, Italy, and, and UK are uh, developing together for uh, their uh, sixth generation uh, uh, air jet fighters. Even in the, in the naval domain, we can envision, I mean, if you look, for instance, at the, the very close cooperation that France has developed with, uh, with India, including in terms of uh, very critical capabilities, uh, when you look at the uh, Italian renewed interest in the region, especially in India where uh, Georgia Meloni came to open the, the Resina Dialogue. Uh, and if you square that with the, the close uh, uh, Franco-Italian industrial cooperation, so maybe something can be, can be done there. Although the bilateral relation between Italia, Italy and France is not the, the best at the, at the moment, but that kind of cooperation could be, could be envisioned. Well, I think the, the main point of the report is, um, before going to the Indo-Pacific, is, is more uh, European integration, uh, having flagship projects that can have a pull effect uh, at the European uh, level. So we also have ideas on how uh, we could fill intra-European gaps. For instance, let's say, imagine the, the German and the Dutch... Uh, building coastal submarines for the Baltic states that lack uh, that kind of capabilities to protect the the Baltic areas Mm -hmm. or again using the the EU framework and EU funds to, to have joint collaborative projects.
0: Matu, I think it's a fantastic report and really timely uh, as we are heading into a new NATO summit and to really remind everyone that uh, while there's a land war currently taking place in Europe, that's obviously everyone's focus, that the naval domain shouldn't be neglected. And also, I think the report's a good reminder to an American audience that we sort of sometimes dismiss Europe's potential role in in the Indo-Pacific. but. Uh, it's it, Europe is an incredibly powerful partner collectively, and then countries like France are, are very much present in, in the Pacific. So, Mathieu, thank you for, for great work. Thank you for coming on the Eurofile. It's been, been a pleasure. Merci. Thanks for having me. Au revoir.
1: That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Also check out the report written by Max and Otto on transforming European defense. You can find the link to that report in the episode description. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.